If you can hear this message, listen closely. To the exiled, misunderstood, or upside down, this is your message of hope. When problems come, use them. When enemies persecute you, love them. These struggles are a fire, refining you into gold. Look around. You are not forgotten. You are not alone. Challenge what is expected of you. This world is not your home. You are different. If you have your Bibles with you today, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're in week 3 of our four-week series going through the book of 1 Peter. And you all thought it couldn't be done, but we are going to get there. This will be the shortest series I've ever done going through so much Bible. So I'm learning as I continue to grow in favor with the Lord and uh, then we'll get back to going through our 10-year study of Luke eventually one of these days. <laughs> That's funny because it's true. Uh, anyways, this week I was talking to my wife, and one of the conversations we have, because we're coming up November 16th, is the anniversary of when we went official with our relationship. And we're, I don't know if it was 15, 16 years ago. It was a while ago. And we were marveling at that. And so every time we have one of these sweet conversations about, like, I can't believe like time's going so fast and life is so good with you, all of this stuff... We always end up finding a way to make it weird somehow. And so one of the things is always like, hey, if I die, I want you to remarry. And that, like, nothing tanks a conversation faster than doing that. But I'll do like, hey, Aunt, like a couple years ago when I was going through all my health issues, I told Anna, I said, hey, if I don't wake up from this surgery, I want you to know like, you have my blessing. Like, go out and get married, find someone that can raise our children, someone that's better looking than me and makes more money and all of that stuff. Like, do it right this time. Not, no more mistakes. And she's like, no, no. And she's like, well, if, if I were to die, I would want you to get remarried too. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, I am never doing that. Because I love marriage so much. It's incredible. Like, I, I can't explain how much I love my wife and how much I love being married. But I also can't explain how terrible the dating process is and convincing someone to marry you. So, like, I'm never going through that again. That was the most insecure time of my entire life. Every time someone's like, hey, you know, I, I got this special person in my life, I'm like, oh, God bless you. Like, I hope you can make it through this because it's, it's, it's terrible until you actually get a ring on the finger. And so I was, I was thinking back to, uh, like, this, the process of right before I met Anna, you know, like, all of these, pretty much for guys, this is what we do. We open a phone book, right, uh, call them up, hey, you want to get married? No, all right, find the next, hey, my name's Jeremy, you want to get married? And we just keep doing that until someone says yes. But um, I was like on the verge of buying 17 cats and just posting memes on Facebook all day before I met Anna. And then it, like, it restored faith in me. Like, yes, I can, like, I, can, I can do this. I can have a relationship. I, maybe I could get married someday. <clears throat> and it's doing this whole awkward courtship process of I don't want her to know that I like her because I don't want my heart to get broken. But I also want her to know that I like her to see if, you know, she likes me. Because usually what happens is you find someone that's perfect and completes you, and that you just, like, love them, and they just love someone else with all of their heart in the same way that you love them. And it's just this awkward triangles that are going around everywhere. And so I'm trying to play it cool, so I'm talking to some mutual friends. Hey, uh, do you think, like, maybe Anna likes me? Oh, yeah, she likes everybody. Like, what's that supposed to mean? No. <laughs> Oh, yeah, she's friendly with everyone. Oh, yeah, yeah, friends. That's all I was talking about. Yeah, I want to be friends with Anna. And, and then, like, no, I mean, do you think maybe there's more than friendship there? Like, oh, no, like, not a chance. Oh, and that kills you. So then you go and you ask the next friend, hey, do you think Anna like likes me? 
And then finally someone's like, yeah, she totally like likes you. And I'm like, oh, because I like like her. And do you think that I should talk to her? Yeah, you should totally ask her out. Like, how do you do that? Because it's been a while since the sixth grade when you wrote the no, like circle yes or no if you want to go out with me. And so like, it's doing all these tricky things like, hey, we're going out with some friends and it's one other couple that's engaged. And it's like, oh, you know, we're just hanging out as friends. It's a double date, but I tricked her into doing those. And eventually, I, I work up the nerve because I'm just like so insecure because like, am I her boyfriend? Am I not her boyfriend? Should I call her? Should I not call her? Because if she likes me and I'm not calling her, then that's bad. But if she doesn't like me and I'm calling her, that's going to kill all chances that I have to do this. That's had no idea what I was supposed to do until finally on November 16th, of all of those years ago, I was dropping her off after seeing a movie, and I was like, I worked up the courage, I planned out the speech, had my note cards, I was going to profess my love for her, and like, hey, let's be exclusive like this, because this is good. And so I work it all up, and I pull up, I put the car in park, I'm like, hey, Anna, i, I got to talk to you about something real quick. She's like, okay. I'm like, i got a big crush on you. And I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. And she's like, I have a big crush on you too. And I'm like, really? Like, what should we do? She's like, let's pray. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's pray. And so like, I held her hand, and that was the first time I held her hand. So for all of you that are uh, interested in someone, pray with them because you get to hold their hand. But then, then at church the next week, so this is my boyfriend, Jeremy. And it's like, yes, yeah, like I'm a boyfriend. And what that did was now she's called me something, she's given me some identity, and now that I know who I am, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to call her. If I don't call her, that's a problem. But um, what we find in life, not just in these dating relationships, but who you are determines what it is that you do. In every area of life, who you are determines what it is that you do. And this is something that Peter starts talking about now in this book. He's talking about the idea of a calling that we have, that we have to know who we are, we have to know what we're called to do before we know what it is that we are actually supposed to do. And he uses these three words a lot in it. When I was planning this out about six months ago, I was going through First Peter, and these three words stuck out to me. He keeps saying again and again, call, calling, and called. These three words he's using over and over and over again. And this is what they mean, is, is Peter says that you have an eternal call to Christ. That's the first call that every single one of us have. When Peter was out there, he was fishing, and he's not catching anything, and then Jesus comes up to the shore and says, hey, cast your nets out on the other boat. And Peter's like, hey, I don't tell you how to write in scrolls, rabbi, so don't tell me how to fish. He didn't really say that, but I'm sure that was going through his mind. He's like, but whatever, I'll do it just to get you to leave me alone. So he throws the net in, and he catches so many fish, it's sinking the boat. That's the moment where he has a revelation that Jesus isn't just a rabbi, he's not just a moral teacher, he's not just an enlightened man, but in fact, there is something divine about him. And it's because of that revelation that now he decides that he's going to leave everything else behind so he can follow after Jesus. He leaves his family, he leaves his business, he leaves his boats and nets. He doesn't even sell them, he just leaves everything on the shore. Someone else is like, thanks for the scraps. But he just leaves everything behind and all of the old desires that he has because now he's going to follow after Jesus because of the revelation that he's had of his divinity. And that's the first call for every one of us is that we're all called to follow after Jesus is that you might have had this moment where you realize that Jesus wasn't just a man, but that he was God, and that he had a call for you, and you had to make the decision, am I going to leave everything else behind and all of the old desires that I had for life so I can follow after Jesus now? That's the first call for every single one of us. And then the second thing that we have is we all have a temporary call to an assignment. Uh, Peter 
uh, he had a, a call, and what was he? He ended up becoming a, an apostle, or uh, he was going out, and he was an authorized representative of Jesus to go and to heal and cast out demons and do all sorts of those things. But that was a temporary assignment that he had, and we all have those. Um, I went from, you know, my call used to be, my temporary assignment, my relationship was I was a boyfriend, and then I became a husband. And the marriage relationship is the most concrete, long-term kind of a thing that we have here on earth in our relationships with each other because it's a covenant that until death do us part, I am committed only to my wife. But that till death do us part is a part of it, is that I'm not going to live forever. There will be a day when I am not Anna's husband anymore because I have passed from this life onto the next. It was a temporary assignment that I had. Even this role that I'm doing as the, a church planner or the leader of Radiant Church, this is a temporary assignment that I have. Because I'm following the eternal call of Christ, now I'm being obedient to what it is that he's asked me to do in my temporary assignment of leading the church. But someday he might call me to Siberia to plant a church and I will ask all of you to come with me. Any hands? We're going to do some commitment right now. Nobody. Okay. I'm going on my own, Jesus. But even if I stayed here till the rest of my life, I still have a finite period of where I will be the leader of this church because it's a temporary assignment that God has given me. And we all have temporary assignments that are a part of following after Jesus. But then the last part of the call that we have is a daily call to a different standard. It doesn't matter what your temporary assignment is that you have in following after Jesus. Every single one of us, wherever it is, whatever we're doing, we all have a different standard that we've been called to live according to. And what am I called to do? What is this call to a different standard? Well, God will first reveal the who you are before he reveals what it is that you're supposed to do. He wants you to understand who you are in Christ Jesus before he tells you the way that you live out as a son or daughter of Christ Jesus. And as Peter is writing, he's writing again to a people that are very persecuted, they're very despised. Nero had already blamed the Christians for burning down the city of Rome. Uh, so there are, like, nobody likes the Christians. It's a death sentence for you to be public about your faith in Jesus. But they also are really um, thought very poorly of the way that the Roman world viewed Christians was that they were superstitious, incestuous cannibals. That was the, like, that's their PR, that they needed an agent so bad, if anybody ever did. Because when you hear Christians, like, aren't those the superstitious, incestuous cannibals? Like, I don't want to be a part of their club. There's no way I want to be a part of that. And the reason that they thought this about Christians was because, number one, superstitious, they believe in Jesus, who was a magician. He's doing things like walking on water. He's doing things like multiplying bread, healing people, casting out demons, being raised from the dead. Those are all things that they viewed as being supernatural and not real. They were just magic tricks that Jesus performed. And now all the followers of Jesus, they were superstitious people who believed in miracles and magic and fairies and all of that. They believed they were incestuous because what the Christians did, their gatherings, like what we're doing right here, that was their agape feast, they called it. It was usually built around a meal. And uh, agape feast means love feast. So you invite, hey, you want to come to my love feast? It's like, no, do I know you? And then who are the people that they invite to the love feast? Oh yeah, all my brothers and sisters are coming to my love feast. It's like, dude, like you are messed up. That is the nastiest thing I've ever heard of. But that's the way, because they didn't understand Christian terminology of brother and sister in Christ or what a love feast was about. They thought that they were all incestuous. And then they thought they were cannibals. And this one might be easy to figure out. Why would they think they're cannibals? It's because Jesus, their magician, said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
Like, no thank you. I am definitely not signing up for this love feast where you're going to eat people's flesh and drink people's blood with your brothers and sisters. But this is the way that the Roman world thought about them. No, they were despised. They were hated. They were thought to be fools. They were thought to be worse. They were thought to be morally corrupt people. They absolutely hated Christians. And so Peter starts out speaking to the people in this situation with this kind of a public image about them. And he says in 1 Peter 2, 9, For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Before Peter's telling them what they're supposed to do, he's reminding them of who they are. And it's so important that you remember who you are in light of what the world thinks that you are. He starts out by saying, no, you're not despised. You're not outcast by society and the world and worthless. You're a chosen people. That the, the king of all kings, the living God, the creator of all of the world, he chose you. And when someone chooses you, it's because you have value and because you have worth. When you were in phys ed, you probably at some point did the terrible thing of where they split you up and you had to choose teams. And the first person to get picked, they feel really good about themselves because there must be something really valuable or good about them if they were picked first. And the person that's picked last feels absolutely terrible about themselves and goes home crying because like, nobody sees any value or any worth in them. And what Jesus is doing through Peter in writing this letter is saying, no, you're not the people that are despised and rejected. Maybe the world around you hates you and doesn't think anything good of you, but the reality of who you are is that you are chosen by the living God because you have worth and because you have value. That's why he chose you. He says, you're a royal priest. For a lot of early Christianity, if you were a Christian, it was a death sentence for you, but also um, in some other places, it meant that you couldn't have any kind of a good job that you had to do just like the most menial, like picking up sewage type of a jobs. I actually had some friends that were from Romania, and there, being a Christian under the Soviet rule, you weren't allowed to go to college, and you weren't allowed to get anything except for a minimum wage job. It was because we're going to try to put social pressures on you to redefine your identity and think that you're stupid, think that you're not worth anything so that you will abandon Jesus. But what Jesus says is that you are royal priest. And the priest, that's the most well-sought-after position that society had at the time. Because a priest is someone who mediates between gods and man. And what Jesus is saying is that you aren't the scum of the earth. You aren't just made for these menial jobs that they're going to allow you to have, that society is going to define for you. But that you've been chosen by me to be a royal priest, not just a priest, but the royal priest. You are the one who goes and mediates between the true and the living God and represents him to fallen mankind around. There is nothing more important that you could ever do. He says that you're a holy nation. It was really easy for the Christians who were being persecuted and suffering to feel like they were completely on their own. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to make you feel like you're on your own. But what Peter's doing is he's reminding them that you're not on your own. You're part of a nation. And it's not a nation that's defined by geographical boundaries. It's not a nation whose borders are expanded through war and other things like that or that's ruled over by any other human. But it's a nation that's from every tribe, every tongue, people of every race, every creed who are all gathered together around the banner of Christ Jesus. And we are never alone. We have more brothers and sisters than you could ever possibly imagine. And we're all in this together and we have a king who rules justly and fairly over us. And then he goes on to say that you're God's very own possession. Have you ever rented 
something, like a vacuum to clean the, the junk out of your carpet, how do you treat that thing? Not real well, because it's not yours and you don't care about it a whole lot. Those things get banged up and they're nasty. What happens to your possessions? Like, we're like, my precious. Like, I'm big on books. Do not mess with my books. A lot of times if you ask me to borrow a book, I'll just buy you a copy of that book because I don't want you messing up mine because people are always taking them and they're bending them back and ruining the spines. Like, for me, I have some books that I put on nitrile gloves before I open them and read them because I don't want to get oil on the pages or anything like that. And nobody else does that because I'm a little bit weird about it. I understand that. But people are dog-earing things and writing and things. I'm like, no, you're ruining my books. Like, these are my possessions, so they're really important to me. And this is what God's telling you. You're his possession. You have so much worth and you have so much value because God looks at you and he says, they are my own. And I won't let anybody else be able to mistreat them and get away with that. He looks at you and he says that you are worth being treated well. He says there's so much dignity, there's so much respect that you're worthy of. There's so much love that you are worthy of because you're mine. And nobody else can define that. The world rejects you, but Jesus accepts you and he says you are mine, my very own possession. And he knows how to take care of his stuff. And then he goes on and says, And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So after telling us who it is that we are, defining who we really are in Christ Jesus, now we see why it is that God has called us out of darkness. And it's because of the fact that we're supposed to show others the goodness of God. He saved us. He set us free. He's called us his own. He's made us royal priests. He's made us a part of a family that's bigger than we could ever imagine. And he's done all of this so that we can show the rest of the world how good our Jesus really is. Now, our world might not look at us today and say, you're a bunch of superstitious, incestuous cannibals because they have some basic understanding of the Christian faith now. But what the world will do is look at us today and define us as being self-righteous, judgmental, bigoted, you know, all those other sorts of things. And unfortunately, there are some people that have done a lot to create and rightly earn that image. I remember when I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, there was a guy I met. His name was Brother Bill, and he was in his 70s or 80s, and he had been pastoring a church, but he quit his church so that he could go into street ministry. And this is what he did for street ministry for over the last decade when I met him in probably 2001, 2002 range, is he would go out on the streets on Friday night right downtown Nashville, and he'd just stand there with his big old, like, you know, 100-pound King James black leather-bound Bible, and he'd just yell at you. So, you know, me and my friends, we had long hair, so we're walking. I was like, you, you're adorning yourselves as a woman. You're going to hell. I was like, what? I'm like, no, man. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm a Christian. Like, I'm, I'm play bass at my church. Woo, you know, all that stuff. And he's like, why would you wear earrings? You're adorning yourselves like a woman. You're going to hell. So I'm like, what are you talking about? And then some woman walks by, and she had short hair. He's like, you have short hair. You're going to hell. And he's just like sitting there just yelling at everybody. He's like, there's the woman on the beast herself is walking before me. And so I ended up engaging with him because I was stupid and thought that I could make a difference. <laughs> and I'm like, how, you've been doing this for how long? He's like, I've been doing street ministry for over 10 years every single Friday night. It's like, in these 10 years, how many people have you led to Jesus? He's like, not one, but I planted a lot of seeds. And I'm like, yeah, seeds of hatred and bitterness and rebellion. Like, 
what are you doing? And so we ended up having to part ways agreeing to disagree because we were not going to sway each other's mind. But there's a lot of people in him like the world that are out there and they're earning the label because I believe they're demonically possessed or like who knows what's going on, but it's not the spirit of Jesus that is in them. And they're going out there and they're making a mockery of everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has called us to be and everything that Jesus has called us to do. And Peter's reminding us that the way that we fight the labels that our society gives us from their ignorance or lack of understanding or whatever it might be isn't by going out and yelling at people in the streets, but instead, he says, it's going to be by the way that we live our lives. We're going to live by a standard that is different from the standard that the world around us lives according to. We're going to go from the darkness where we were when Jesus found us, and we're going to be called into the light so that we can not judge people and cast you know, all of these terrible things at people and judge people. Jesus can do a good job of pouring out wrath and judging people on his own. He does not need our help doing that. What he's called us to do is to be those who go out and show the world how good Jesus is. And so Peter continues this by saying in verses 11 through 12, Dearest friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. What Peter is saying is that we're not going to go out there and try to convince the world of the faith that we have in Jesus by yelling at them. We're not even going to do it by trying to have arguments with people. Now, I do believe that we're called to give a defense for the hope that we have in Jesus. The Bible spells it out. When someone says, well, why do you have hope in Jesus? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you follow after him? We should be able to give a very good defense for the faith that we have in Jesus, why we follow after him, why we live a life that's different from the world that's around us, why we aren't doing the same things that the world around us lives. But he hasn't called us to be those that have to go out and defend ourselves when we're slandered and when we're smeared by other people. He called us to live a life that silences all of those who would slander us in the Jesus that we follow. You know, when it comes to this, it's like your coach probably told you at some point if you played a sport, the best defense is a good offense. And that doesn't mean that we're going out and we're like, you know, doing bad things to people. But what it means is that the way that we live on offense in our faith is we go out and we demonstrate the heart of Jesus. We go out and we spend our life committed to showing other people how beautiful and how good Jesus is. And that as we do that, it causes other people to look at you and to start to think differently about you and about the Jesus that you follow. One of the things that we're committed to doing in our city is making Jesus beautiful by serving our city and serving other people in it. Jesus came and he served us in such a beautiful and such a sacrificial way that as followers of Jesus, now we're called to do the same thing. Uh, last year, we, took, um, we catered in some lunch for all of the faculty at Ford ELC. And uh, the, we went, Sybil decorated it beautifully. I mean, she makes everything look awesome. She's incredible. And I remember all the teachers are walking in there because it's lunchtime, and I'm walking behind two teachers, and they don't know who I am because we've never been introduced. And I overheard them talking, and the one teacher's like, what? What's going on? She's like, oh, Radiant Church. Like, they brought us lunch, and then they walk into the, the, the cafeteria. Oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful. There's little fake flowers on the tables and little table covers and stuff like that. And they see and smell all the food. And the, the first teacher's like, why would, why would they do this 
And she's like, oh, I don't know, it's this Radiant Church. I just want to be cool. We should go check it out sometime. And the other teacher's like, oh, no, like, I don't go to church. But, like, why would a church do this for us? What was happening was that she probably had some bad experiences with church, or she was opposed to Jesus and Christianity. Maybe she'd experienced someone like Brother Bill that told her she was going to hell for one of the thousand reasons that he'd come up with. But when she saw an authentic demonstration of the love of Jesus... It wasn't because I explained to her. I didn't try to defend Radiant Church. I didn't try to defend Christianity. I didn't say a word to her. All we did was rally some people around to show them generosity and to show them love and to show them value and respect. And it began to change the way that she thought about things. We don't have to get up and defend ourselves. We don't have to get up and try to defend Christianity or Jesus. What Peter says, as he continues in verse 15, he says, it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. When people who, because of ignorance, they don't understand Jesus, they don't understand what Jesus does in their heart, they don't understand the beauty of following after him, it's just out of ignorance that they don't, don't do that. It says that the way that we silence their accusations is by living an honorable life, by living according to the standard that Jesus has called every one of us to, by modeling and demonstrating the culture of the kingdom of heaven. I was in the hospital a couple of years ago, and uh, there was a nurse that was taking care of me. Uh, she was a day shift nurse, and like you know, had interactions with her. I was on Dilaudid, so I was probably really warm and friendly and cracking jokes or whatever. And, uh, you know, just having a good time. And then by the end of her shift, she's getting ready to go. And she says, hey, out of curiosity, so what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. She said, I'm sorry. I'm like, no, it's a great job. Like, I really, I really like it. I don't know what your idea of a pastor is, but I really enjoy my job. And she says, no, no, I mean, I'm sorry because I've said a lot of bad things about pastors. Because in my experience, pastors are the only people more arrogant than surgeons. I was like, wow, you don't like anybody. <laughs> I really like surgeons. And so she sat down on my bed, which hurt, but I didn't say anything because I recognized it was a moment. And we had a conversation about faith and about God and his goodness. And at the end of our conversation, she didn't make a decision to follow Jesus, but she stood up and she shook my hand and she said, thank you. You've restored some faith in me for the church. I didn't explain to her my beliefs. I didn't give her a theology book to go home and read. I didn't tell her everything that she was doing wrong in her life. All I did was over the course of a day with her taking care of me was I loved her, I showed her honor, I showed her dignity, I treated her in a way that showed that she had eternal worth and value, and I said please and thank you, which is a really rare thing. And doing that, living my life in an honorable way, silenced the accusations that she had been making out of ignorance. What we want to do is when someone wrongs us, we used to feel like we need to get on social media and we need to post our 12-point reasons why we're right and everybody else is wrong. We want to get on there and we want to get mad and we want to yell at people and ruin all of our relationships with everybody else. 
That's the way the world does things. That's the way the world expects us to respond or expects us to act. But what God is telling us through this letter that Peter is writing is that that's not the way that we address those who are making accusations against us. The way that we address those who are making accusations against us and against our faith is we live according to a different standard. We live in a way that is honorable. We live in a way that shows other people that they have worth, that they have value. And this is what we're going to continue to do as Radiant Church as a whole in every one of our lives. The call on us is we're called to live with radical generosity towards others. We're called to live with radical grace and forgiveness and mercy towards other people. We're called to be radically accepting of other people who might be very different from us, people who might be very lost and very far from Jesus. But the fact that someone is, because of ignorance, living in the bondage of sin doesn't mean that they still aren't worth something because Jesus created them to be a son or daughter, and Jesus went to the cross to lay his life down for them. If they are worthy of Jesus laying his life down for them, then they are certainly worthy of us loving them and treating them in the way that Jesus would treat them. And he continues on. He says, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is our example, and you must follow in his steps. This is where it starts getting real, because it's easy to sit here and be excited about loving people and going out there and modeling and demonstrating Jesus until it cost us something. If we all just think we're going to go out there and it's going to be like with the teacher or with the nurse, like that's not how it always goes. There's a lot of people that don't like Radiant Church. There's a lot of people who don't like me and I haven't won them over yet. Jesus says that following after him and living according to a different standard means that there's going to be suffering that comes along with it. There are going to be people who take advantage of us. That's just the reality of it and that's okay. What it says is that Jesus went and he suffered and he died on the cross for us when we were taking advantage of him. When we weren't living, he could have looked at it. There are people who will die and spend eternity in hell. Even though Jesus went to a cross and he was punished and he was beaten and he was tortured and he bled and was pierced through to save them from hell. You can look at that and say, well, that was a waste. Jesus' sacrifice was in vain. That's not the way that Jesus looks at it. Jesus says, I love so much that I'll pay any price and I'll go through any amount of suffering because not everybody might take advantage of this, but I'm going to make it open. I'm going to make it available to you, even if you continue to reject me every single day of your life and not take advantage of the salvation that I've made available to you. I'm still going to do it for you because you are still worth it and I still love you. Following after Jesus means that we're going to have to suffer like Jesus did. A lot of times we think the suffering of our faith is they passed over me for the promotion because they know I'm a Christian. I'm being persecuted. No, that's not persecution. Or they didn't invite me to the party because they know I'm a Christian. Or whatever it is. Like we have these ideas of what persecution is. That's just social peer pressure trying to do things. That's not really persecution. But there are people who around this world, the different missionaries we support, where their lives are being taken from them. And it might mean that we're going to have to suffer in ways that make us very uncomfortable to follow after Jesus. And what's going to determine whether you stand through suffering or whether you pull back and ultimately fail to live out your faith when the suffering comes is how worthy you have found Jesus to be. Is he worthy of the suffering? Every, every uh, mother that's given birth, they understand suffering. And they go through it and it seems 
absolutely terrible having watched my wife do it three times. I don't know how we got past one. If it was me, like that would have been it at one. But she sees our baby and she says that it's, it's got so much value, there's so much worth to these children that it's worth her going through physical suffering so that she can bring life into this world. It's a beautiful picture of it. But we don't do the same thing for going to the gym. Like, we don't care about that. That's not worth the suffering. Like, we're going to stay home and sleep. It's not worth it. But when it comes to suffering, what's going to determine if you're willing to suffer and endure and be persecuted and hated and slandered and continue to be taken advantage of by other people is going to be if you have found Jesus worthy of your suffering. Have you found him to be so good? Have you found him to be so beautiful, so worthy that you're willing to endure anything so that you can continue to be obedient to Jesus and so you can continue to demonstrate and show the goodness of God to the world that's around us that because of darkness is living in ignorance and is far from him. And it means we have to lay ourselves down over and over again and people are going to take advantage of us and people are going to hate us and people are going to accuse us and that's okay because that's what Jesus went through. And as we continually lay ourselves down just continue again and again and again. We make Jesus beautiful and we show the goodness of God and the goodness of God is what leads someone to the place of repentance. It continues, it says in 22-24, he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Normal is we curse those who curse us. Normal is we hate those who hate us. Normal is that we get revenge against those who have wronged us. But what's different, the standard that God has called us to is that we bless those who curse us. We love those who hate us. And we don't seek revenge against people who have wronged us. We forgive them over and over again. It's the Beatitudes. It's when someone comes and forces you to walk a mile with them, you go the extra mile. When someone comes and they try to take your coat, you give them your tunic too. It's that you don't try to defend yourself. You don't try to defend the things that you have a right to by the rules and laws of our culture. We live by the rule and the law and the standard of the culture of the kingdom of heaven that says that we continue to suffer and we continue to lay ourselves down so that we can demonstrate the goodness of Jesus, just like he demonstrated his goodness and his love for us when he went to the cross, even though he didn't deserve it, but laid his life down for us who were far from him. And it was that revelation of God's goodness that led us to the place of repentance where we followed the call of God, where we followed the call of the assignments that he gives us, where we begin to follow the call to a different standard. It says this in 1 Peter 3, 9, Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Now, this is one of the hardest teachings in all of Scripture. I'd say probably the second hardest teaching in all of Scripture is this idea of we don't live our lives for ourselves, but that we live our life for Jesus. And the way that he's called us to live in obedience to him is to lay ourselves down for other people, to live according to a different standard. But when we do that, we start to see the kingdom of God expand. Because the kingdom of God doesn't expand through arguing. The kingdom of God doesn't come through shaming and condemning. The way that Jesus brought the kingdom of God 
was by suffering and dying on a cross to show how good the heart of our Father is. And that's the call, that's the standard that we've been called to. And what keeps the church, especially the church in the Western world where we have so much comfort, like we don't have to worry about things like food for the most part or, or medicine. It's like we, we're just so blessed with material things in the Western world that we've grown so in love with comfort that we're not willing to suffer. And we've made little gods for ourselves of ourselves. And we think that our life is about making ourselves comfortable. We think our life is about defending ourselves. We think that we're going to advance the kingdom of God through the fallen systems of this world. That's never happened, and it never will. The kingdom of God is going to expand in our city, a city where less than 2% of the people go to a church, which is like heartbreaking to me. It's why I'm here. It's why you're here. It's because we want to see our city transformed because there's so many people who are so hurt, who are so lost, who are so broken, who are living in ignorance because they're in darkness. They just haven't seen yet. They haven't seen, and that's why they aren't following after Jesus. And Jesus has called us. He's empowered us to be those who can demonstrate his goodness. We can do that. God wants his church, not just Radiant Church, but the church over our entire city to grow and to expand and to reach people who are living in death and bring them into life, to go to those whose hearts are broken and to put the pieces back together, to restore hope in the hopeless, to restore marriages and bring healing and restoration and freedom to people. This is why Jesus came. This is what Jesus does. And he's called us to partner with him in doing that. It says that we're ministers, we're partners in the ministry of reconciliation. But we've grown so in love with comfort. We've become so in love with defending ourselves. We've married ourselves to the systems and the patterns of this world, and we try to advance the kingdom through that, and it never works. The reason the church in our city has been failing and isn't growing isn't because of our city. It's because of the church. It's because we haven't done, we haven't been who God called us to do. And if we want to see the church expand, if we want to see our friends and our families and our neighbors and our relatives and our students finding Jesus and the life that comes in him, it means that we're going to have to understand first who we are, who Jesus made us to be. And when we get that, we're going to understand what it is that we've been called to do. And then we have to say who Jesus is and what it is that he can do in someone's life is so worth it that I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to lay my life down so that the people of my city will know Jesus. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, I love this quote. He said, if I had a thousand lives, I would give them all for China. I'm going to take this on. If I had a thousand lives, I would give them all for Ann Arbor. I would give them all for Ipsy, for Milan, for Dexter, for wherever it is that you're from. Would you be willing to spend your life, everything you are, so that Jesus would receive the reward of his suffering, so that others would receive the benefits of Jesus' body and blood broken and shed on the cross? so that hell would be plundered and so that heaven would be filled to the brim with people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, from every background, from every way of life, from every sin that have all been pulled up by Jesus and washed and made whole and made new. That's the heart of our Father. That's the heart of Jesus. It's what he came to and it's the heart that he's called every single one of us to have. Will we take hold of that? 
where we live in a new way. Can you stand with me this morning? Let's just take a moment to let God speak to our hearts. some of you, knowing who you are starts with recognizing that you're called to be a son or a daughter. And maybe you haven't made that decision. Maybe you're living far from God. You don't know God as your father. Because sin has separated you from him and broken that relationship. What he wants you to know is how much he loves you. How precious you are to him. He's called you, he's chosen you to be his people. He's chosen you to be a priest. He's chosen you to be a part of a holy nation. He's chosen you to be his own possession. And it starts with putting your faith and your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and responding to that eternal call of Christ and saying, Jesus, from this day forward, I'm following after you. I'm saying no to the other things of this world so I can say yes to you. And I need you to strengthen me. I need you to empower me so that I can live the new life you've called me to so that just as you died to free me from sin, I truly can live free from sin now. Maybe for you it's that you've been trying to advance the kingdom. And you've had good intentions. We've been trying to advance it through the systems of the world. You've been trying to defend yourself You've been upset by accusations and you just need to entrust it to the hands of your father. Say, Jesus, I'm not going to fight. Instead, give me the strength and the wisdom and the power to silence accusations by living an honorable life that demonstrates the love of Jesus. Maybe for some of you, it's that your passion has gone cold. been more in love with advancing your career or pursuing relationships. Maybe you've been more in love with toys or whatever else it might be, but you've lost the passion for Jesus and you've lost the passion for first and foremost seeing his kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. You've lost the passion for making disciples and living in a way that makes Jesus beautiful. That's you, Jesus says, return to your first love. Return to him. He doesn't judge you. He doesn't shame you over that, but he calls you. He wants to reignite fire inside of you. He wants to reignite a passion for him inside of your heart and a passion for going to those who are far from him that they might find life in Jesus too. Jesus, our life for you. Jesus, our life for your kingdom cause. Jesus, would Radiant Church be a place where people find life? Would it be a place where they find freedom? Jesus, would this be a place where people find the acceptance? God, would this be a place where people find grace and mercy and love and healing? Jesus, turn this into a house of prayer and worship. Turn this into a place where people who are burdened and weary come and they receive the light yoke that comes from you. They receive the lifting up of their heads. Jesus, do something new inside of our city. Do something new inside of us. Our lives for your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to call my prayer partners forward. They're just going to be on the front outside here. If there's anything that we can pray for you about,
come, let us pray for you. We see Jesus do incredible things every single week in response to the prayers of his people. And if not, as you go today, remember, you're not leaving church, you're going as the church. And you've been called to live according to a different standard. Stir up that passion for Jesus this week. Live the way that he's called you to because you know who you are. God bless, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.